This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review Sound as Ever by UMI. What? what, what, what? You know, I was mixed on this album. In your face and screaming and you can't ignore it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, Mr. Jason Ziek. Jay, we have entered the 21st century. I am no longer on a crappy USB $20 mic from Best Buy. I have graduated to a snowball with a pop screen. Holy crap. You sound good. Thank you, sir. My silky tones can now come across. <laughs> You're like a grown-up really or something. Sound. Yeah, I know. All thanks to uh, my in-laws who uh, made some awesome Christmas purchases for me. Thanks to my wife saying, so what do you want for Christmas? And I said, you know what I really need is this snowball uh, pack that they sell on Amazon, which included the, the pop screen and the um, stand. Because <laughs> I'm lounging on the couch right now doing this instead of sitting at a uncomfortable desk trying to squeeze all my equipment onto a desk yeah i'm just sitting back on the couch got the mic next to me how about that yeah it's pretty sweet so we are finally getting to the massive collection of music that was sent to us by mr gavin reed in australia last year he sent us a usb stick full of australian bands that we needed to know about and this is the first time that we are actually getting into his collection of uh, music and this is an interesting band we're, we're going to tackle umi and we're going to review you are right are you <clears throat> yes were you familiar with umi before hell no okay no way see i thought the name sounded familiar but i was completely wrong about what they sounded like uh, i was maybe thinking of sam i am or something like that yeah, I was probably thinking of Sam I Am, too. Some other Am I or You Am I. Something along those lines. Uh, basically, what happened was I think I got an email at one point, and he we had reviewed the Super Jesus, and we had reviewed Ammonia. And he said, enough with the bad Australian bands. Let me send you some good stuff. Really? So, yeah. So he was, he was laying it down. I don't think he said out bad. I think he said the commercial bands, the bands that were like, the you know the, the pop uh, the popular alternative rock bands in australia and he was like i want to dig a little deeper and send you some really other cool stuff so what he sent there's a pretty diverse amount of stuff not all of it was the most popular but you know that's all right with us we're happy to take on stuff that's not so popular once Hence again our- only in his world is uh the super jesus popular right exactly <laughs> In, uh, in our world, it couldn't be more obscure. So UMI is the the band we were going into uh, uh, recording or um, reviewing this. And uh, I was expecting, I guess, I thought they were going to be punk from that name. And uh, I think we're going to find out I was sorely mistaken. Uh, but before we do that, why don't we do the history of the band? Why don't we? Why don't we? UMI formed in Sydney, Australia in 1989 by Tim Rogers with brother 
I believe it's pronounced Jamie. It's J-A-I-M-M-E. And school friend Nick Tischler. That lineup changed within the first year. Uh, Andy Kent was brought in to play bass, and Mark Tunnelly drums. And that was pretty much... Uh, well, that, that was for the first album, which we're reviewing, uh, Sound As Ever. After Sound As Ever was released... Mark Tunnelly left the band and Russell Hopkins joined on drums. Now, there's a little bit of information I left out there. So they released four EPs after the original lineup got together. Not the not the brother and school friend, but Kent and Tunnelly. They released four EPs and they were playing a festival in Australia, which Sonic Youth was also playing. And Lee Ronaldo of Sonic Youth saw them and fell in love with the band seeing them live and invited them to come to the United States to record with him and they recorded this album uh, Sound As Ever with Lee Ronaldo in a Minnesota recording studio it was released in Australia on Ruart Records and it won the ARIA award for best alternative release in 1993 hmm. uh, were you going to say something Jay? no I just um, I'm shocked at it got that much attention <laughs> go on second album hi-fi way also on ruart records came out in 95 this is the album which russell hopkins hopkinson russell hopkinson placed tunnelly on drums the third album hourly daily came out in 96 also on ruart fourth album which was called number four record came out in 1998 on ruart fifth album the following year 1999 Saturday Night Around 10 came out on Ruart. And then Tim Rogers also released a solo album, What Rhymes with Cars and Girls, the same year. Two years later, they moved to BMG Australia, the record label, not a city called BMG. Um, and uh, they released the album Dress Me, Dress Me Slowly, adding touring guitarist David Lane uh, in the studio. He, he was Previously, he was a touring guitarist, and then he started recording with the band. Uh, 90 or uh, 2002 released Deliverance on BMG Australia, then moved to Virgin EMI in 2006 to release Convicts. Tim Rogers released uh, a second solo album called The Luxury of Hysteria on Ruby Q Records in 2007. In 2008, the band released Dilettantes on Virgin, and in 2010, the band released a self-titled album on the Other Tongues label. And that is the history of UMI. I believe I have that all correct. There are some side project things that went on that I don't really want to go into because it's too much information. So I like to keep this nice and short. Uh, so UMI. Neither of us had heard of this band. Maybe the name flashed across somewhere sometime but never heard the band. Uh, like I said, I thought this was going to be punk. I was wrong. Uh, this came out in 93. This is at the at the beginnings of the alternative grunge explosion, I guess you'd say, in the 90s. To give you a little bit of perspective on um, this band, the second track is called Berlin Chair. The band Silverchair named their band by taking Silver, which was a Nirvana song, 
and Berlin chair and combining it to silver chair. Oh my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> I always wondered about that. Like what the hell does that mean? Silver chair. Wow. There you okay. go. Berlin, Berlin chair was a big single in Australia. And that's where that name, that's where the bank got their name. So knowing that, knowing that Jay, God, now I feel bad. What's your opinion <laughs> of sound as ever? Oh, you're guilting me into liking this album more than I maybe did. Um, no, not, not at all. Not at all. I have some interesting perspectives, I guess. Uh, but I had perspectives, but some, some thoughts, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, we can do a little back and forth here. Um, I, I guess in general, I, I, I don't get it. Maybe I haven't listened to it enough. And, and not that it's sometimes when I say I don't get it, you know, maybe the music's just too abstract or too challenging. Um, this is, I think, the opposite. I don't think it's challenging enough. I think half of the album, there's some some interesting uh, things going on and some and some promise. But a lot of it tends to be, for me, you know, the, the, the guitar is playing a fairly you know, predictable riff and the bass is following it and the singer sings along with the same melody. And they're all sort of playing the same thing. Um, you know, uh, obviously the early Black Sabbath did that to great effect, but this is not the early Black Sabbath. Um, no, it's a three-piece. <laughs> right. Uh, I think any time on the album that they mix in either a second guitar, you know, over, an overdub guitar, or there's a couple songs that actually feature piano, I think mm-hmm. it starts to make more sense to me, and, and it comes to life a little bit. Other than that, I, I don't know. It's just it's very pedestrian. It's very average. Um, the one thing I did notice um, that that was pulling me in from time to time was the vocal, particularly because I think he is probably the most um, similar I've ever heard of someone to Greg Dooley, who I, I think has a fairly unique voice. Um, when he goes into his yell or scream it sounds almost identical to when Greg Dooley does it. Um, and he sort of even That's goes back, back and forth between doing sort of the low croon and doing the, you know, upper register kind of yell, um, you know, higher screen part even does like the teetering on almost being off key a lot <laughs> thing that Greg mm-hmm. Dooley does so well where it, you know, it's, it's, it just, it puts you right on the, right on the edge of, of, of disaster. Because you're listening to it like, oh my god, this guy's gonna completely lose it, and start singing in a completely different key. But he kind of, you know, pulls it back in. He does a very similar thing. Um, even musically, there's a couple songs on here where I said, I thought to myself, wow, this sounds like a a stripped down song from the early Wig stuff. You know, it's uh, it's missing uh, Rick McCollum's. Slide guitar. Slide guitar or just even dissonant yeah. sort of noisy guitar. Um, but the rhythm is could be similar to maybe something that Dooley would have played, you know, as a basic idea for a song, and then the rest of the band would have really kind of put the you know, that special thing that the wigs do um on top of it. Well, you know, unfortunately that really isn't there. Um I don't know, I, I could go on and on, but am I completely off well, base I, here or are you were you No, and I, but I think I, I, well Here's what I would say. I, I, as a rule, am not the biggest fan of three pieces. Yeah. Because I think it limits the sound. Yeah. Especially if you're not going to expand upon it in the studio. Uh, 
I really like the first song, but I think the first song is a misnomer because it's really up tempo. It has that really cool bass tone, and yeah. bass tone I, I wrote almost sounded like a synth at times. It was really really cool. There's nothing like that on the rest of the album. Right. Track two is cool. It has it doesn't have as big a hook as I think I would like it to, but it's a good single. From and actually there was a weird and I know they recorded with Lee Ronaldo, so maybe this um, tainted my listening. But the beginning of track two and the beginning of track eight, Jamie's got a gale. Both had this like sonic youth sound to the guitars. Um, they were a little bit dissonant and and but clean. playing a telecaster mm-hmm. on on both those songs i was doing a little reading about his his gear mm-hmm. and he, he pretty much played a uh i was i think it's called a thin line telecaster yeah and then um also he played they're called they're rickenbackers but they're not really rickenbackers they were like the Rick. custom made uh, they were they were like made in australia and they're like ripoffs of rickenbackers uh, there's okay. only like a handful that were ever made but that leads me into where I think the majority of this album lays. I was having a hard time because it's like some of this kind of reminded me of almost like the Black Crow, Crows and Sunvolt. And then I was realizing there's a lot of like small faces kind of sounding stuff. And it was like there's a definite like country rock element and blues rock element. Not blues rock in the Stevie Ray Vaughan or something like that, yeah. but... Just, there's like a tinge of like lament, I guess you would say, in his vocal. 
And it goes from basically like tracks three until, God, almost like track 11. They're very, and, and a lot of those songs are not my favorite songs uh, because of the fact that I can, I would, I'd be listening to it and I'd be like, man, if Rick McCollum just stepped in with a lead here, this would be totally <laughs> awesome. Yeah. But that's just, that's just my overall, like, I'm not in love with three piece bands. Even though that there are times when his lyrics overcome the lack of a of a counter melody to what he's doing, I actually started paying attention to the lyrics in a couple songs. Adam's ribs is an interesting one. I don't know if you caught any of the lyrics in that song. It's essentially it's about body image and the need to like fit into the right jeans and look the right way to to be a rock star essentially and he, he sings about like as long as we're emaciated it reminded me of uh the manic street preachers song four pound seven stone mm-hmm. where he sings about anorexia from a male perspective which is not something you hear in rock and roll that much interesting that he sang about that because he's not the only guy and i don't know if he actually had an Im- i'm guessing that if you, if you write about it or I'm, I'm saying i'm not saying you have to have experienced it but daniel johns from Silverchair had like a very public bout with um i think it was anorexia because he was remember, very thin yeah i just thought it was an interesting song uh topic considering a lot of this stuff is very you know relationship oriented uh, the other song that was interesting, which I had to do a little bit of research on, was Jamie's Got a Gale, which I thought was sort of playing off of Jamie's Got a Gun by Aerosmith. And then I found out that Jamie was his brother. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And essentially, it's about his brother leaving the band. And if Jamie's Got a Gale, and then there's all this stuff about he, he's not showing up anymore, and he's not answering his phone. And essentially, I think that the point of the song is that once his brother got a girlfriend, he stopped wanting to be in a band anymore.
you know, I was mixed on this album. I'll say that there are some songs that I like, but I only, I think it's a little bit long of an album, and I think it's missing some stuff here and there. Uh, tracks, track 11, You Scare Me, has some cool harmonies on it, but it's way too long. It's over seven and a half minutes mm-hmm. long. Yep. You know, there's obvious, there's some obvious, I think, Nirvana influence. That's there's funny. a bonus I, I track. Didn't get, I didn't get much of you have to listen to it again looking for that I, I off out of the gate i wasn't getting much of that type of thing i was almost wishing for more of that in fact you know you sort of said you you assumed this would be a punk album i sort of assumed it would be you know a little more typical early 90s mid 90s grunge you know really snarly you know raw guitars and um, maybe like you know a vines type thing or you know a pre-vine type thing so i was kind of surprised that there wasn't more of that to me it really sounds like a first album like yeah, they're still they haven't figured out how to yeah it, they, they just haven't figured on a, on some of the songs how to keep them interesting each verse and each chorus yeah. because there's not yeah you know, i don't think anybody else is singing i think he's doing his own harmonies the first time out you're just putting down the songs that you've been playing and i know that um uh, track one which i don't know how to pronounce it's cop rolalia or something um that was an ep that was the lead that was the name of an ep that came out before the album so there were a number of songs that didn't even make it onto the album so they definitely had a large batch of tunes to pick from but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all as worked as possible you know i think if maybe they were a little bit more experienced they would have heard some of the holes that are in there and said well we need to i you know i know that they added a piano later uh as a touring member and they added a second guitarist as a touring member which means that you know maybe on later records which i don't know we maybe get to them in the years to come um they started adding those elements but there's this not there's not a lot of parts of the songs where you even hear two distinct guitars playing. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a there's a couple songs where they they definitely overdubbed a second guitar, and then there's others where they didn't. And it really, you know, it's one of many things. I, I think really what we're talking about is just the production of this album isn't very good, and that's both from an engineering standpoint. There's some flaws. There's some nice parts. I think some of the guitar tones are fine and, 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 and not bad. I think, like we said, the bass tone on some of the songs is pretty cool. But the mix is not there, and there's just missing parts. Um, you know, maybe live, it, some of these songs, you know, played as a straight-up three-piece sound fine, you know, sort of in a room and really loud. But on a record, you got to really rethink that sometimes, and you need to... You can't pull it off with um, either the tone that you're using... Or, um, you know, by adding, or, or by your your proficiency at your instrument. You know, there's some people, you know, you know, obviously Eddie Van Halen doesn't need a second guitar player. Uh, right. There's not very many people like that. Um, you know, uh, even Nirvana didn't really need a second guitar player, even though they added Pet Smear at one point. I, I think it was not really that necessary. Um, but there's other people that just. You know, they don't have the tone and they don't have the sensibility of how to fill out, you know, the full, the full sound of the song. Um, if you can't do that when you go into the studio, you need to, you need to add some extra tracks, you know. And 
There's some times on here where they do that, and it really helps a ton. It, it, the music starts to take on a whole other feel. Um, and when they right. don't, it sort of sounds like a guy who wrote a song, and he got a couple buddies to, you know, come to the studio for the afternoon and, and just play over top of it. You know, so there's not, you know, a tremendous amount of uh, creativity there, you know, from what the bass is bringing or what the drums are bringing or what they're doing with the backup vocals. Um, in fact, like track. 10 which is basically just an acoustic song within by himself i think it works actually it drew me in a lot more than a lot of the other songs in the album did um just because it, it, it sounds a lot more immediate or like it, it's much more a lot of the album sounds kind of distant yeah yeah it, it gets it almost sounds like a demo there's some aspects to the vocal and stuff that don't quite sound perfect and that's completely fine i actually appreciated that because yeah like you're saying it sounds immediate it sounds intimate it sounds near me it drew me in it also helped me when i got to that track start to understand the dynamics of the band a little bit better we're so ordinary can't seem to break the hold of every clown that's come before us and every story that's yet to be told and even though the paint's not dry yet there's someone with the tongue hanging out Cause something so don't taste so bad When you can muzzle someone needs to shout And everyone who's watching now At the movie that's always rerun Can throw and laugh and stick in the pen Cause we're overrated or loud or we're young and anyone who's looking out Just waiting for tall guys to fall Can rest assured in blankets now That nobody can be that small So when I went back and listened to it, you know, a second or third time, I sort of got like, oh, this is, you know, it's a three-piece. The singer's playing guitar. He's writing most of the songs or all the songs. And the other guys are basically, you know, playing with him. And, you know, they probably went back through and had some ideas on how to add piano or other things to some of the songs, but other ones they didn't, and they are as they are. And a lot of those songs, to me, just, they sound a little unfinished. Um, So I think, you know, I highlighted three or four songs in here that I thought had promise and were fundamentally probably fine. It just was really hard to appreciate them, um, I guess, in the way they presented on this album. Uh, going back to the Nirvana thing, just because I, I wanted to point out where I was hearing that. In the lead track, when he hits each of the end of the lines, he does like this, he stretches the vocal in the same way that like Cobain would. Mm-hmm. He, like, he goes, Neh! like he like, you know, exp- it just extends the word. Mm-hmm. They sing at the end, which sort of reminded what Kirk Cobain did. And then there's a there's a hidden track. I don't know if you actually did you make it to the hidden track, Jay? Yeah, yeah. That sounds very uh, like bleach, incesticide, Nirvana. Not necessarily the the main albums, Nevermind or In Utero, mm-hmm. but it sounds very much like a like a lesser known Nirvana track, just in terms of the, the chord progression and. The way he's singing. Jesus Christ, and if your pants are nice, I 
in terms of uh, other bands from that era that I sort of heard of, the other band I was hearing, in terms of the vocals more, and not to say that they were, uh, that he was influenced by them, but just in terms of a contemporary was Local H. Hmm. I don't know if that came across to you at all, but his, his vocal reminded me a little bit of that guy. Yeah. I don't remember his name, Local H. I think it's Scott something. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, but the, see, there are three uh, pieces that, like... Um, they're two-piece. Yeah, sorry. A two-piece. There you go. Even better. That it's fine. Like, you don't... When I hear them, I don't ever think to myself, oh, wow, there's something missing. You know? Cause it's, well, he's no very... Sense. You know, they're very purposeful in their guitar playing. Or he is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, he knows he's a two-piece, right. and, like, he knows how to right. play to that. Like, he takes it into account and figures out, you know, oh, I gotta fill this up. Which I don't think this band, at least on this album, hasn't quite figured out how to do that yet. And, no. And the and the and the lack of, I guess, creative riffs at times really makes it difficult. Like you mentioned, Black Crows, and like I I had written down Black Crows as well, but I wrote down like this would be like a C side for a Black Crows. <laughs> it would be some yeah. riff that wasn't even a B side song. It would be like, you know, that style of blues, I guess, blues rock. Um, at those moments well that's why album. I mentioned small faces because yeah. it's not as you know it's a, a little less I, I think of the black crows and they're very riff oriented mm-hmm. and I don't think of the small faces as, as being riff oriented as much yeah did you hear on some of the songs especially the first song a double kick yeah I wrote that on the first one and highlighted double bass it, it comes in at the end sort of the the last quarter of the song he like goes this double bass part I was like what, 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 what? Where the hell did this come from? Yeah, I'm, that's when it, the first track totally throws me because it's the only song that's driven by the bass line. It's got a double kick. He's really stretching his vocal a lot in that song. And then they kind of don't go back to that at all. I guess that's what I would like to have heard. They sort of settle into a mid-tempo-y you know, range for the middle portion of the album. And it doesn't really provide much uh, diversity so it would have been nice to, to throw that sort of more up-tempo stuff in there later on yeah just I, to give it a little I, change i struggle with that because i hear i and i in some ways i agree with your, what you're saying although i i gotta sort of look at you know what songs i responded to and some of them tended to be slower or more mid-tempo um you know like track three for me was one of the best songs train spotting Yeah. It had a replacements kind of vibe to it, and it was a little bit 
it, it was pretty loose and rough, but it, it had somewhat of a hook to it. It had some piano. It may even had like a mandolin or something mixed in, or at least a guitar part that was played really high. There was just at least some texture going on there, and it had sort of that um, looseness, you know, the replacements have. And mm-hmm. that, to me, started to feel like something that, you know, that they could do well and started to make sense for how they write songs and, and started to come together for me. I struggle with, I hear what you're saying, like there's part of me that, like, you know, when they rock out, there's moments there where you're like, okay, this is starting to make sense. But then there's, from a song standpoint, it seems like he writes better probably he's more comfortable writing songs that are a little bit slower more mid-tempo in terms of being able to get a vocal melody across that is a little bit more distinct memorable doesn't just follow i also noticed like the faster songs he tends to like just follow the guitar line and i understand that's probably you know it's hard when you're writing a song when you're playing it you're the guitar player and the singer <laughs> you know you're probably gonna your tendency is going to be to to sing the same melody you're playing a guitar but um especially if you're playing fast. But for me, that just really boring. One last thing I wanted to mention before we get to the the ending section, who we think this is for. Uh, I found a quote on the Wikipedia page for Tim Rogers, and he said, probably 90% of every song I've ever written involves a capo. When you're fir- when first using one, the possibilities of things become realizations, and you can write in different keys and things. I think I want to be buried with one. <laughs> I can relate to that. I was gonna say I thought you would. <laughs> it's a magical moment when you discover a capo, and you've sort of been trying. You know, you've been writing songs for a little while, and all of a sudden you put one on. You're like, oh my god, this changes everything. Like all the voicings are different, and everything's in a different key and it takes on a completely different feel the same chord i've you know have been playing for years all of a sudden has a wholly different uh characteristic to it so. for those of you who don't know at home a capo is basically a little um uh, i would i guess you'd say it's a little like snap-on or um uh, what's the little it's a little metal like vice yeah that you would put on the neck of a guitar and it it, it basically creates a new starting point Instead of the you starting it, if you say most uh, standard guitar tuning is at E, if you all of a sudden put it two frets up, all of a sudden your guitar is now in, I guess F. Or is that right? Am I or am I going backwards? Uh, this is where I need Katie to, to chime in. But basically, it it retunes the not retunes, but it, it changes the key of the guitar for you. Yeah. And it, all the chords, if you might play a, a, a regular G chord, all of a sudden playing that G chord is not a G chord anymore. It becomes a completely different chord, yeah. it's depending a, on where you put capo. It's an easy way to transpose songs. and yeah, you know, Playing songs in different keys gives them different, even though you're playing the same chords, different keys give it a, can give it a completely different feel. It can also just, the strings feel different. You know, the tighter, the more you move the capo down, they get tighter and they just open up different possibilities and just, you know, creatively it can be a cool thing to try and do every now and then to just, you know, spark new ideas and stuff. So we get to the part of the show where we ask, who is this album for? If you were, somebody was asking you, Hey, uh, I heard you reviewed UMI. Uh, and they said, I'm really into such and such a band. Would you say, yeah, you should check them out or no, that's not going to be your thing. Like I mentioned Local H, because Local H is still around, they're still playing. 
I think if you, you know, some of the local age stuff, you might be able to draw a comparison to this. But then we also get into the Black Crows, which is a totally different end of the spectrum. Yeah, I, I don't know that a Black Crows fan would be into them. Just, I don't know. Maybe the, if you're a fan of just the early era Black Crows, you know, pretty much. But that era is very minimized in terms of their overall career, really. with You know, they're known for being more of a, a jam band almost at this point. Um, right. I, I would go with, God, I, don't, I, I think the first two Wigs albums. Like, if we know, being Wigs fans, that there's sort of a, there's two camps almost. <laughs> there's fans of up to Congregation, and then there's fans of from Congregation forward. Um, and sometimes they don't always mix in terms of the wigs. If you're right. a fan of the early stuff, uh, this may appeal to you more. I, I don't know. To me, it, it it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't have this sort of, uh, I guess, the sense of chaos or this, uh, I don't know, the, the, the rawness that the early wig stuff has. But I don't know. I, I heard a lot of similarities in terms of vocally, maybe even lyrically. Um, you know what those what those albums are like, and, and what they're doing here, and, and some of the guitar stuff and tones and things are, are somewhat similar. Here's a band that I think might actually be a good comparison, and they actually have the same name. Instead of the Afghan Wigs, what about just the Wigs? I'm um, thinking of that "Hand on My Heart" song has a little bit of like a southern rock tinge yeah. to it. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of what I and wish. They're a three piece. What I wish this band sounded like. I mean, I think they sound thicker, fuller, more realized, um, mm-hmm. you know, the hookier. You know, I think this sounds like this. Yeah, I see where you're going. I think this could sound like maybe an early version of that band, although the, the album, their first album doesn't sound a ton like this. But yeah, I could see you know, more the second than third. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's kind of the basis of the basic pieces and parts that uh that are similar between the two. I, I can see that. Because after that, I don't have a lot of... I had a hard time yeah, drawing and, my comparisons. And in that regard, I mean, you got to hand it to him for that. You know, it, it's not it's not that it's derivative necessarily someone else. No, no, no. It just sounds, I guess, unfinished to me. Not fully realized. At least on this album. It's a good freshman effort, and I'm interested to hear what... Hi-Fi Way, which came out two years later, sounds like. Especially because they added a new drummer. I want to see if, you know, you take away the double kick. <laughs> uh, well, what I'd be, happens? I'd be curious in a change of producer what, you know, what, 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 what might happen. I have the sense that they weren't really pushed very much on this album, you know, in terms of they kind of came in, did what they did, what they have been doing, and, and you know, nobody really stepped in and said hey that's kind of cool but have you thought about it this way and what if you put this part here and you know kind of push them to think yeah. about things a little different there's no sense of that i mean it really just sounds like a band that's been you know playing in a garage and playing a couple of live gigs and you put them in a recording studio and t- turn the tape on and just let them do their thing that would be lee ronaldo of sonic youth who let them do that so i don't know what else he's produced i haven't looked at his producing credits but if there's a, if you're gonna blame somebody, you can blame Lee. And the, and the mix overall is just, I found it strange. Like the vocal is very dry and separate from everything else, and the drums sound like they're far away. And 
Again. Yeah, the drums do not sound good. No. And it's just it, that's just another thing that makes it challenging, you know, because it doesn't the music doesn't gel together. It always is separate. Like you can always hear the separate parts almost too much. I'd almost like a like a remaster of this, and just a you know a remix that just it just needs to be bigger sounding, just about more more thump from the from the the kick drum and the bass and just. You know, more aggressive. Not not even like changing the parts even would make a difference, but just changing the mix so that it's more in your face. Yeah, would make I a agree. Huge difference. I agree. There's some of the guitar parts on here. They they border on becoming almost a dinosaur junior kind of thing with big open chords and just gnarly fuzz and just you know, mm-hmm. loose, but you know, interesting. There's moments where that happens, but it can't fully deliver because. It just sounds so distant, and it's not, you know, his guitar, Jim Mask's guitar is always like in your face and screaming, and you can't ignore it. And, you know, it's all, right. everything melts together. This isn't like that. It sort of sounds like a, you know, an amp in the, in this far back of the room when the drums are in the, at the neighbor's house, and the singer's like right in your face on a dry mic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, to, even just from an engineering standpoint, if that had hit, was different or more fuller it would help quite a bit all right i think we have covered umi uh we need to thank gavin reed for bringing this to our attention this will be the first of several uh this will be the year of australia for us we will be going down under multiple times to um investigate his collection uh later on we'll be getting to a really obscure band that um, I mentioned during the uh, the end of the year podcast for uh, season one. I think they're called Asteroid B six one two. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. That might be that might be even obscure for Australians. So if we don't if we don't get our Australian cred, then I don't know what's gonna what's gonna do it. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to do some ACDC or something. Did they have an album? We could do Stiff Upper Lip. They had an album that came out in the 90s. Uh, I want to do a Rose Tattoo album. Although I don't think they released anything in the 90s. Uh Uh-oh. All right. They may have. I'll have to check. They were mostly like early 80s and then recent. They have a resurgence. Yep. Okay. All right. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in once again. And we will be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. You take me out.